the the actual mm-hmm. numbers reported don't really matter. It matters what they are relative to what was expected on the buy side. I mean, that's a lot of people misunderstand. Mm-hmm. They're always like, oh, they they beat the, the top and bottom line estimates. I don't think that that doesn't matter this day and age at all anymore. I don't think beating estimates mm-hmm. matters at all anymore. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how are we doing? What's going on today? Uh, bear market to bull market uh, transition continues, uh, facing some resistance today ahead of the CPI print tomorrow. By the time this is released, you guys will know what those July CPI numbers are. Make a break point for the rally. Uh, we're either going to hit the accelerate button and go 10, 15% higher in a matter of four weeks or so, or we're going to hit the reset button and have a retracement back down 10%. Um, big day tomorrow, big moves ahead. I think we're still in the bear to bull transition. I think the next 12 months are very, very favorable for equity holders. Well, I'm looking forward to getting into all of that in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, electric vehicles, cryptocurrencies, the metaverse, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Ton of things to cover, so let's dive right in, starting off with one of your favorites, SoFi. They had a huge earnings report last week. Their stock was soaring. People are saying you called it. Uh, unfortunately, today there was a slight dip uh, after SoftBank says it's going to sell part of its stake. Um, but what comes next with SoFi? It seems like really good things are happening, despite the fact that uh, SoftBank made this move today. Uh, yeah, I mean, SoFi's earnings were fantastic. The company, you have to understand, a fintech institution like that is supposed to report not so great numbers, slowing growth in an environment like we're currently in where the economy is slowing, the consumer is spending less on discretionary items, uh, the yield curve is deeply inverted, rates are are rising. Uh, that's an environment against which fintech institutions, banks like SoFi are not supposed to report great numbers. Yet, SoFi came out and reported superb numbers across the board. The key theme here was re-accelerating growth. Remember, this was a company that has been accelerating user and product growth for several quarters. It kind of decelerated in early 2022, but we re-accelerated last quarter. So the company added something like 450,000 new members Last quarter, they added 408,000 the previous quarter. So that's an acceleration in uh, member growth. Product growth also saw a similar acceleration. So in an environment in which SoFi was supposed to not do great, they're doing fantastic. Management also lifted its full year revenue and EBITDA guides. So everything is firing at all cylinders um, at SoFi. And that's really no surprise to us because – it's a great service and great services attract 
a lot of customers. Those customers are going to use that service more and more and more over time. They're going to have high lifetime values. And as a result, the company is going to generate a lot of revenue and a lot of profit. So we're really excited about the story at SoFi. Um, yeah, you could say that that we called that the stock was going to have a uh, the company's going to have a great quarter, but we've been bullish on the stock. We we're bullish at ten. We we're bullish at fifteen. We we're bullish at twenty. We we're bullish at five. We've been bullish for a long time. We're continuing to be bullish for a long time because at the end of the day, Aaron, SoFi is a long term growth asset, and don't invest in a long term growth asset unless you're willing to wait for the long term. Nothing has changed about the SoFi story over the past twelve, eighteen. 24 months. Nothing has changed. Yet the stock price has gone exceptionally haywire, right? We went from 10 all the way up to, I think we popped at 27, 28. I think maybe we even got to 30. Then it's come back down to five and now it's rebounded up to eight. So we've had this very haywire action in SoFi stock, but the fundamentals of the company, nothing has changed. We own the stock because we think in five to 10 years, this company is going to disrupt traditional banking and be the largest bank in America. Uh, on that assumption, that's that's why we own the stock, not because we think it's going to do well in six months or 12 months or even 18 or 24 months. We own it for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. That's why we own SoFi stock. So a lot of people are like, you know, the bulls were idiots when the stock was was down at five. The bulls were geniuses when they were up at 30. No, the fact of the matter is <laughs> you got to let the story play out and the company continues mm -hmm. to fire on all cylinders. So as long as they continue to do that then the bull thesis for them turning into the Digital Bank of America strengthens. Our conviction in that long-term thesis strengthens, and we continue to believe that the stock goes not to, you know from 5 to 8 back to 750 I don't care about this little 5%, 7% drop because of SoftBank selling. You know We're talking little mm -hmm. jump change moves here. I'm in the stock yeah. because I think it's going to go to 50, 70, 100, 150, 200, over the next five to 10 years. That's where I really believe the stock can go based on my assumption that this platform, the SoFi platform, becomes just as large as a regional bank in America, 20 million to 30 million subscribers or members. Those members use two to three products on average between the banking, the money, the credit card, the investing, the relay, the education, between all those things. So 20 to 30 million members, two to three products per member at you you know, apply average revenue per product to those numbers and you do that modeling on it. And all of a sudden that's how you do get to $150, $200 stock in the next five to 10 years. So that's why we're in SoFi. It's great to see the healthy quarter. It's great to see the nice pop, mm -hmm. but this story is just beginning. So we're not going to mm -hmm. celebrate. We're not going to, you know, if the stock goes up 50%, we're not going to celebrate. If it goes down 50%, we're not going to get mad. We're just going to ride the course mm -hmm. so long as the fundamental numbers remain very good. And that is the case today. The fundamental numbers are very good. Accelerating product growth, accelerating member growth, margins are going higher, revenues are going significantly higher. So, so long as those trends remain in place, we're going to stay long and strong in the stock, hopefully for massive gains in the next five to 10 years. Now, we all know that you, you're a user of SoFi, um, yep. but not everybody has the time to do the research into the fundamentals, into the management team. What's attracting your average user to SoFi uh, beyond all the things that you see in it from that macro perspective? Right. So I think there's there's a few things that uh, are doing really that we attract people to SoFi. Uh, first, mm -hmm. that we think is the biggest value prop is the all-in-one convenience of the platform. Uh, there is no other fintech banking platform out there where you have a single mobile app from your phone 
where mm-hmm. you can have a checkings and savings account. You can invest in stocks. You can invest in ETFs. You mm-hmm. can invest in crypto. Uh, you can invest in person SoFi made ETFs that are pretty cool. We like what's going on where you can set budgets, where you can have uh, track spending, where you can um, uh, learn about new materials such as how to invest in cryptos, what is staking, um, you know, what is income investing, how do I get yields, what is auto reinvesting of dividend yields, stuff like that. So this is an all-in-one platform that is unique in the marketplace today. That's what attracted me to SoFi. I, I was tired of having mm-hmm. you know, the Wells Fargo, the interactive brokers, the Robinhood, the Coinbase, having five or six different apps just to control all my money needs and money desires. Now we just have SoFi. SoFi is my all-in-one, one-stop shop for everything I need to do finance-related. Uh, you can also apply for mortgages. You can apply for personal loans. You can do all that stuff as well, like you can do at a traditional bank. So from that perspective, we are very bullish on the one-stop shop convenience of SoFi. Remember, Amazon got to what Amazon is because it became that one-stop shop for retail shopping, for buying clothes, for buying books, for buying toys, for buying household products, to buying skincare products, hair product, all that stuff, right? That's why Amazon became what Amazon is. SoFi is building that in the financial world. So we're really bullish on that. The second value prop, which I have come to learn over time, is that because this company does not have a physical banking presence, it doesn't have a lot of overhead. It basically has no overhead. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't have to pay for all those retail branch locations, all those ATMs, a lot to do, which is a lot of money. They take those savings and they pass them right through to the consumer, right through to me as a SoFi user. So I'm getting higher yields on the savings and checkings accounts. I'm getting better rates on the credit card spending. Um, I'm getting better fees on crypto buying, on, on stock buying. So you're just getting a lower cost financial service platform across the board. They're getting better mortgage rates on SoFi, getting better personal loan rates on SoFi. So you're just getting better cost. The cost structure is optimized for the consumer with SoFi. So between those two things, one, one-stop shop, two, lower cost, we think that's all the consumer needs. What more do you want out of a bank, out of a financial service platform? You want something that's going to be able to do everything for you, financially speaking, and be able to do all that for you at the lowest fees possible. That is SoFi. So, and the advantages that enable SoFi to do that are embedded within the DNA of the company and hard to replicate for other banks. Wells Fargo has all these physical locations. Bank of America has all these physical locations. Citi has all these physical locations. So what are they going to do? Shut them all down? They have that overhead. So they cannot be as cheap as a SoFi, just unless they shut down all those locations, which is going to be a huge undertaking, something they're not going to do um, anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Also, talk about the all-in-one convenience, that mobile application. Those other firms I just mentioned, they're financial firms. The top tech graduates today don't want to go work at those firms. They want to go work at SoFi, and they are going to work at SoFi. SoFi has a much more adept team of coders and software engineers to build a more intuitive, more attractive, more compelling mobile application than any of those other firms. So the two advantages that make SoFi what SoFi is, in our opinions, in our opinion, are very defensible. They're very defensible advantages. 
Mm-hmm. So that's why we're very constructive on the long-term growth narrative for SoFi. That's why we think this company can get to at least 20 million, if not 30 or 40 million subscribers, members, excuse me, over time. And that if that is mm-hmm. the case, the modeling follows through that this is a triple-digit stock you know, within five, six, seven years. So that's why we're in SoFi. That's where we think the stock can go. Nice results. We'll cheer them, but we're not going to celebrate <laughs> with, with the stock just yet because we want to see this thing go way, way, way higher. Gotcha. Holding off on the celebration. Uh, another one of your favorites reported great numbers last week. Pop 25% uh, open door. Uh, but we actually have a relevant fan question I want to uh, yeah. ask you right now from Rusty Russ. Uh, what is your outlook and current analysis like for open? It seems to be lagging given the state of all things in general, while there are still less houses for sale, hence demand should be supporting it. Should we buy, hold, or sell? And again, looking at the, and so that was the question for Rusty Russ, but it looks like the numbers were kind of mixed, but Mm -hmm. overall investors seem to be celebrating them. Can you tell us a little bit of what's going on with open door right now? Right. So, uh, Open Door was lagging, reported those great numbers last week. Stock popped 25%. Now it's leading. That's kind of how these things work. So that's why I'm not really, I don't pay too much attention to what's leading and lagging on a short term basis. I don't think it's very important, mm-hmm. um, especially with these stocks. They're volatile and it can change on a week to week basis, even a day to day basis. A one day move in Open Door all of a sudden made it a leader. Um, so not too concerned about that. Um, yeah, Open Door's numbers were mixed, but the fact of the matter is, the reason this stock has been destroyed is because Wall Street has expressed pessimism over the company's eye-buying business model in a housing market slowdown, which makes sense when you're in the business of buying and selling homes. If those home prices decline mm-hmm. for a prolonged period of time, you're probably going to lose money. So Wall Street has been very concerned that Open Door in the business of buying and selling homes, if those home prices do decline for a prolonged period of time, is going to lose a lot of money. And that's why the stock's been destroyed. That's why we're trading at something like 0.5 times trailing sales. I mean, it's ridiculous how cheap the stock is. But what the quarterly numbers underscored, despite them being mixed, is that Open Door is not going to lose a lot of money. We are in a period where home prices are starting to stabilize and even decline on a, on a month-over-month, quarter-over-quarter basis. Open Door's average sales price on its homes actually declined about 1.5% quarter-over-quarter last, last quarter in Q2. And it's supposed to decline again this quarter. Yet despite all that, Open Door reported record gross margins in Q2, record EBITDA margins in Q2, and is guiding for a very narrow EBITDA loss in Q3, the likes of which the company can easily sustain with its current balance sheet without even tapping additional financing. So what the numbers basically told Wall Street is, yes, Open Door is not going to be reporting massive EBITDA numbers in a housing market slowdown. No one expected them to. But at the same time, the company's losses, even in the worst of times, are not going to be that large. And they're going to be small enough where the company can easily sustain them, absorb them with their current balance sheet. And then, you know, after one or two quarters of that, the market's going to turn around and the business model is going to boom. So I think that's what Wall Street is celebrating, the fact that Open Door proved the resiliency of its business model in a housing market slowdown. It's what management has been preaching for months and months and months now. Doesn't matter. Housing market boom, housing market slowdown, flat market. Our business model, our algorithms will allow us to succeed in any market. The uh, Wall Street didn't buy that. 
Open Doors numbers proved it. Now Wall Street's buying it. They're coming into the stock. I think it's the start of a pretty big turnaround in in that name. So I'm very constructive on that. And also, Open Door, like SoFi, it's a long-term growth asset. We're in this stock for mm-hmm. the next five to 10 years. SoFi, future of banking, Open Door, future of housing. Because the value props there, again, let's talk about the fundamentals of the business. The value props are so strong. You want to sell your home for you know the least amount of money? That's Open Door. It's a five percent commission rate. You know when you go out into the marketplace, you're paying two to three percent uh, for for a broker um, on the sell side and buy mm-hmm. side. So that's four to six percent. Yes, the median's five percent. But you want anybody that's decent, you're going to pay two to five, two and a half to three. So you're talking five to six percent. So it's the low end of the commission rate for um, selling a home in America. So five percent, it's the cheapest way to go. You want convenience? Well, Open Door allows you to essentially sell whenever you want, close whenever you want, move out pretty much whenever you want. Everything's on your time schedule. You don't have to align with a buyer's needs or kind of compromise with the buyer's needs, come in the middle. You don't have to deal with communication between selling agent, buying agent, buyer, seller, all this, you know, kind of locking it lost in that communication line. A lot of parties there. So it's the most convenient uh, way to do it. You want speed. It's also the fastest way to sell a home. Again, you can sell it whenever. You can close it whenever. You want to sell it in a week, you can sell it in a week. I know folks that literally went out and bought a home and then turned around and sold their home to Open Door, got that cash, and then put it towards a new home because you can do that with Open Door. It allows you the flexibility to do it that quickly and the certainty to do it that quickly. And that's another thing about Open Door is you get certain offers. They're all cash offers. In this market, a lot of offers are falling through. I think I read from Redfin, right? Something like 20% of, of buy offers are now falling through either because people are failing to qualify or the cash isn't coming through. There's, there's many reasons that offers don't go through. Normally, you do mm-hmm. see high cancel rates, but you're seeing higher than normal cancel rates right now just because of the way the economy is and the way mortgage rates are going. So there are tremendous value props to buying and selling a home through Open Door. And those value props, I think, well resonate deeply with a lot of folks. I'm not saying Open Door is going to be you know, 50% of the housing market. But I do think Open Door, already in established marketplaces like Phoenix, where it's crushing it, they own more than 5% of the market. I think Open Door can do that nationally. Like I don't see why they can't. In markets where they're deeply embedded, they own 5% of the market. The only reason they don't own 5% of the national market is because they're not in every market. But they're expanding slowly but surely. They're expanding. Soon enough, they're going to be in every market. At that point in time, I see no reason why they won't control 5% of the national U.S. housing market. If they do, again, let's talk about the modeling. The modeling falls through that this is a company that can produce $150, $160, billion in revenue a year with its 10% gross margins. Because you have to remember, they're taking that 5% commission off the top then they're trying to sell the home over a 90-day period for 2 to 5% HPA on that. So you're looking at gross margins that can close in around 10%. Last quarter, they were 13.2%, 13.3%, I believe. So 10% gross margins, very achievable at scale for this company. EBITDA margins at scale, you kind of assume a regular OPEX base. Then you're probably looking at 5 6 7% EBITDA margins there. You take that on $150 plus billion in revenue. And this is a company that could easily be worth – 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, even $100 billion one day, easily. Yet mm-hmm. today it's it's below $5 billion. So this is a company that, again, I think in a long-term window grows tremendously. 
And the stock has been crushed in 2021, 2022 because of these weird anomalistic factors, COVID-19, stimulus packages, lots of inflation, Fed rate hikes, rate cuts, all this crazy stuff is going on. You have to not be chronocentric and understand that what we've just been through over the past 12 to 18 months is so freaking weird. It's so weird. It's not normal. So let's just kind of like acknowledge that and zoom out and take a 10-year picture and understand, one, people are always going to buy homes. Two, people like Mm -hmm. to buy things online. Three, people like to buy when things are cheaper. They go to the service that is cheaper. Four, they go to the service Mm -hmm. that is faster. Five, they go to the service that is more convenient to them. And six, they go to the service that offers more certainty. So you wrap all that into one package and it becomes crystal clear that open door will at least control 5% of the U.S. housing market at scale, at least. Mm -hmm. And on that assumption, we think the stock goes to $100 or more within the next seven, eight, nine years. That's why we love Open Door Stock. We're not at all concerned about it where it is today. We're very bullish on the recent quarter because, again, we believe it shows, it proves, it illustrates mm-hmm. the resiliency of the business model in a market that is very not good for a company like Open Door, for an iBuyer, for someone yeah. who's busy flipping homes. This is the worst market for them, yet they're still mm-hmm. putting up great numbers and that shows the resiliency of the model that shows the strength of the pricing algorithms and i believe it will get wall street back on open door side creates a base for the stock to go from five to ten mm-hmm. to fifteen to twenty and keep climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing something i told my subscribers recently amazon stock Oh, God, what did it do? I mean, it rallied something like 47,000% or whatever from mid-2001, late 2001 to early 2021. But before it did that, you know, before it rallied 47,000%, it dropped 95% from 1999, late 99 to late 2001. Over about a two-year stretch, it dropped 95%. Because it was an unproven business model, low margin business model that Wall Street simply didn't have time to have faith in in the midst of a recession, in the midst of a stock market meltdown. It was kind of like, all right, you know what? Forget Amazon. We've got other things to worry about right now. But in doing Mm -hmm. that, it's a short-sighted mindset. It allowed Amazon to be a $5 stock and yet still be the future of, of retail, of shopping. Same thing's happening with Open Door. We dropped about 90% from the highs. Wall Street is skeptical of its low margin business model, but it's the future of housing. And now it's allowing us to buy open door stock at $5 before it goes on to soar. I don't think it soars 47,000% from here, but I do think it soars quite a bit. And you do have an Amazon like buying mm-hmm. opportunity in open door today. So I remain as bullish as ever on open door. And despite the, the, the stock price mm-hmm. action, I'm not really concerned with near term price movements. I'm, I'm just not, I'm a long-term investor. I buy and own long-term growth assets yep. for the long-term. Don't buy long-term growth assets mm-hmm. if you don't have the patience and fortitude to hold that asset mm-hmm. for the long-term. You don't buy a long-term growth asset for a short-term spike. You just don't. Um, so mm-hmm. if you get the short-term spike, that's great. That's awesome. You know, that, that, that's that, that, that's really cool. But with, with Open Door, with SoFi, these are assets I plan to hold for five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. And as a result of that, I believe my patience will be rewarded handsomely. And everyone else's patience will be rewarded handsomely. These are stocks that I think can rise. <laughs> Tenfold, twentyfold, thirtyfold um, over that time span. 
Awesome. Well, we've talked about uh, SoFi's earnings and, and Open Doors earnings. Uh, want to kind of we're on the back end of earnings season. Kind of want to come to some conclusions. So, how did earnings seasons go? Earnings season go, and what would you say was the theme of this earnings season? So earnings season went surprisingly well. Um, there were a lot of fears coming into the Q2 earnings season because of mm-hmm. the massive fallout in economic data throughout June and July. But throughout late July and into early August, we've received a batch of really good earnings. Most companies are beating on the top line. Most companies are beating on the bottom line. Growth looks good. The guides are actually pretty decent. So it was a good earnings season. Was it great? No. But the theme, to your point, was good enough. This earnings season was Mm -hmm. good enough. Stocks had dropped 20%. 30%, 40%, some names like Open Door and SoFi were down 70, 80, 90% going into this earnings season. So they were priced for disaster. And we didn't get disaster. We got something better than disaster. We got huh, okay, <laughs> decent. Okay. Decent <laughs> on on because you have to understand and in, in Wall Street on in the stock market, it's all mm-hmm. about expectations. The the actual mm-hmm. numbers reported don't really matter. It matters what they are relative to what was expected on the buy side. Um, and that's what a lot of people misunderstand. Mm-hmm. They're always like, oh, they they beat the, the top and bottom line estimates. I don't think that that doesn't matter this day and age at all anymore. I don't think beating estimates mm-hmm. matters at all anymore. You have to understand those estimates are sell side estimates. They're created by Wall Street analysts from big banks that do not own the stock. The estimates that matter are buy side estimates. What do the buyers think? What are the buyers expecting? So you mm-hmm. double beat, you raise, whatever. It's it's cool. It's nice to see. But what really matters is how the numbers come in relative to how the stock has performed leading into those numbers. These stocks were mm-hmm. crushed going into these reports. The buyers clearly did not think that the numbers were going to be good. The numbers were decent. Decent against such negative price action leads to big pops. That's what you've seen across the board in a lot of names this earnings season. So the theme of the earnings season, Aaron, is good enough. The economy Mm -hmm. is slowing but not falling apart. We're in a technical recession, Mm -hmm. but any recession we likely do see on Main Street will be shallow. That's what the earnings Mm -hmm. season essentially confirmed. That's a positive confirmation for stocks. That's why stocks have rallied through earnings season, and now we're mm-hmm. facing the final the, the final test essentially, which is a, the, the July CPI print inflation. Mm-hmm. We need inflation to come down. If inflation comes down on the heels of what's been a pretty positive earnings season, then you got a basis for the stock market to take a pretty big leg higher into the end of the year. If inflation doesn't mm-hmm. come down, we probably take a reset, and then we keep resetting until inflation does actually come down. So that's kind of like the final shoe to drop here uh, for stocks to really embrace this new bull market that they're trying to enter as you need inflation to come down. Mm -hmm. But as far as earnings go, Aaron, pleasantly surprised. Good enough is the theme, and that is good enough to get stocks to move considerably Mm -hmm. higher. If inflation comes down Mm -hmm. with this, then we get a really big move higher. So uh, I'm really positive on what I saw this earnings season, definitely. So now that stocks have rallied through earnings season and if the CPI numbers come out and inflation doesn't go down, if we still have high inflation, 
or do we go back to a bear market or do we kind of maintain what we have right now? Yeah. No, great, great question. I I don't think we ever retest the June lows. I think June was the okay. low. Um, there is a probability that we do. I'd say it's less than 10%. But I think if inflation does, the July CPI print does come in hotter than expected, I think we reset. But I think we reset maybe 5 to 10% on the S&P and we reset maybe 10% on the NASDAQ. That doesn't bring us back down to the June low. So I think we mm-hmm. are trying to enter a new bull market. The pace of this new bull market, this bear to bull market transition, the pace of the creation of this new bull market will be determined by the trajectory of inflation. If inflation falls out in July, it's off to the races. If inflation falls out in August, then we have to wait to August to go off to the races. If inflation falls out in September, then we have to wait to September to go off to the races with, with stocks. The fact of the matter is that we are, in my opinion, based on the probability matrix that I've created, we are in a bear to bull market transition. The Mm -hmm. bottoms were in June for most stocks, in my opinion. Therefore, Mm -hmm. how much higher stocks go into the end of the year will be determined by the course of the trajectory of inflation. So that's that's how I'm looking at things with the inflation print right now. I don't see this inflation Mm -hmm. print as a uh, market rally killer, Mm-hmm. But more so, just prolonging that transition time from bear to bull. Yeah, exactly. Like, are we gonna just V it, or are we gonna like two steps forward? All recoveries happen in a two steps forward, one step back fashion. Oh, two step steps back. forward, one step back. I've been I've been preaching that to my subscribers. I've been preaching it on this very channel, actually. Mm-hmm. What the inflation print is going to do, and what inflation is going to do over the next several months is determine how big that one step back is. I think no matter what, we go two steps forward, one step back for the rest of this year and into 23 and into 24. I think we're two steps forward, one step back. I mm-hmm. think we're on that recovery trajectory. What is a question mark for me still is the size of the step back when we take the step back. Is it going to be a shallow step mm-hmm. back? That's if inflation is better than expected. If inflation is worse than expected, that step back is going to be pretty large. Not going to bring us back, you know, not going to bring us full two steps back, but it's going to be a, a pretty big step back. So that's how I'm looking at inflation. That's how I'm positioning it. Profit taking into that inflation print makes a lot of sense just to kind of hedge a little bit. But I think ultimately, regardless of where inflation winds up in July, the trajectory of inflation will be lower over the next several months. And that will provide a basis for stocks to go higher. Awesome. Uh, well, segueing into our market check-in uh, and kind of continuing this conversation of where the market's going to go, you say that the basis for a market rebound is a weakening economy. Mm-hmm. Um, last week had a super strong jobs report. Yep. How does this uh, tie into your thesis that you know a weakening economy is what's needed for a market rebound? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Aaron. Um, so the labor market report uh, for July was very hot, very, very hot, and it shocked a lot of people. Stocks responded negatively to the print, but then we rebounded pretty strong, and actually growth assets finished Friday with some pretty large gains. So the market really wasn't that shook by the strong jobs report. Why is that? Because mm-hmm. payrolls tend to be a lagging indicator of economic health and of a recession. Actually, before you fall into a recession, you tend to get a few big payroll numbers. That's because 
fundamentally speaking, look at the business. The last thing a boss wants to do, most bosses, there are some bad bosses out there. The last thing most bosses want to do is fire their employees. So at the point they are firing employees is the point at which SHIT has really hit the fan. Right. You're mm-hmm. not going to fire people when you're like, uh, maybe we'll get through this. You're going to fire people mm-hmm. when it's like, oh, my goodness, we have no other choice but to fire people. So mm-hmm. payrolls are a lagging indicator of the economy. They're a lagging indicator of a recession. Normally, mm-hmm. you get a few big payroll prints before you get a massive labor market collapse. What I'm looking at mm-hmm. is the conference board leading economics, leading economic indicators index, the LEI. That has historically been a leading indicator of the job market. Specifically, Mm -hmm. the LEI has, on an almost one-for-one basis, tracked the year-over-year growth, percent rate growth in payrolls. That LEI has collapsed towards zero. And it has fallen into negative territory. The implication therein, based on the correlation between LEI and payrolls, the historical 40-year correlation there, is that payroll growth year over year will be flat by the end of the year. That December 23 payroll – 22, December 22 payroll growth will be flat year over year from December 21. December 21 job number, total payroll, $149 We're at 156 million today. That implies the labor market could lose 7 million jobs over the next few months. That's about a million job losses per year, over a million job losses per year into the end of the year. I think that's what we're going to do. I think the labor market is about to collapse. I'm looking around. I'm seeing the reports. I'm seeing people's stock prices. I'm seeing what company management or management teams are saying. I'm seeing the announcements. Mm-hmm. Snap just today is laying off people. Uh, there are layoffs happening across the corporate United States. Those are going to show up in the job numbers over the next few months. I think the labor market's about to collapse. I think you're going to get a million payrolls lost per month over the next several months. And that as a result of that, inflation is going to cool meaningfully. It's going to provide a basis for stocks that higher. So the job market number, the hot one of July, feels like a last mm-hmm. hurrah to me, which is very typical okay. for the labor market. As, I, as we said earlier, you to- mm-hmm. normally get this last hurrah and then a big fallout because, again, bosses, the last thing they do is fire people. And when they are firing people, that's when SHIT has hit the fan. That's when it's the Mm -hmm. worst of the worst. So a payroll collapse is the contrarian buy indicator that I think a lot of people are waiting for right now. And I I think it's going to happen. Gotcha. Um, Well, as some as stocks can kind of continue to rally right now and we start to be in this transition into a new bull market, uh, are there any stocks that you uh, like a lot, that you don't like a lot, that you're seeing kind of these trends in? Right. Yeah, for sure. So I think right now um, there's the one sector I really do not like is the semi-sector, semiconductor stocks. Not a fan. We've been doing a lot of selling into strength of those over the past six weeks. Uh, Thank God we have Mm -hmm. because NVIDIA came out on Monday and slashed its guidance. Micron came out today, Tuesday, slashed its guidance. You know, those are major chip makers. They're Mm -hmm. saying times are not good right now, and times are not good for the semiconductor industry. What people, I think, misunderstood about this pump cycle in, in semis is that semis are cyclical. 
They have a 50-year history, Mm -hmm. not a 50-year history, a 40-year history of being super cyclical. They boom, they bust, they Mm -hmm. boom. That's what they do. And those cycles tend to align very strongly with economic expansion cycles. When the economy is expanding, semis are in a boom cycle. When the economy is contracting, semis are in a bust cycle. That's just what happens. I don't know why there were thoughts of secular demand drivers because of the cloud computing boom, the IoT boom, the AI boom, the self-driving boom, that people thought that this time was different, that semis are going to be able to not bust or not go into a bust cycle Mm -hmm. because the demand was so strong and supply was so constrained. But that's just not the case. Regardless of how strong demand is, demand for chips was very strong in the 90s and the PC boom, very strong in the 2000s, very strong in the 2010s. That didn't stop those stocks, that industry from going into a bust cycle. We're in a bust cycle. The economy is going to keep weakening in our base case. So if that does happen, then semis are going to keep going lower. I think eventually this sets us up for a fabulous buying opportunity. In the next six to 12 mm-hmm. months, because of the CHIPS Act that was just signed, there's some very favorable legislation legislation that will support this industry. So you're going to mm-hmm. get a fabulous buying opportunity in CHIP stocks probably at the end of this year, first quarter next year, second quarter next year. Within the next six to 12 mm-hmm. months, you're going to get a fabulous buying opportunity in CHIP stocks. But between now and then – we just drew up a chart on this, did some TA on, on the iShare semiconductor ETF, the SOX. Uh, you know, I, mm-hmm. I think we could drop another 50%. I think we could pull back to COVID mm-hmm. lows over the next six to 12 months, at which point, again, generational buying opportunity in semis. But right now, stay away from semis. Not a fan. If NVIDIA is cutting its guide, NVIDIA, they are the poster yeah. boy of strength in this market. They're cutting their guide. Yeah. Let's use the phrase again. S-H-I-T is hitting the fan in the semi. <laughs> so I would I would stay away from semis yeah. right now. I, I don't like that. We've been okay. doing a lot of profit-taking into strength. We're looking to continue to profit-take. We want to eliminate semi-exposure for the next 6 to 12 months and then buy them on a dip. Because again, let's – and this is an important lesson to learn here. There is a distinction between semis and long-term growth assets like SoFi and Open Door. Mm-hmm. So far and open door are secular growth stories. They're in their early innings, and we think that over the next five to ten years, they're going to grow phenomenally. So those are buy and hold assets. Semis, most of them are mature companies. They're cyclical. Okay. They're not secular growth stories. So you want to buy mm-hmm. those when SHIT does hit the fan and then sell them sure. when it looks like everything is booming and going crazy. Buy low, sell high. That's what you want to do with the with the cyclicals, with the semi. Okay. With SoFi and Open Door, mm-hmm. you want to buy early and sell much later. Very different mm-hmm. situation. So just want to point that out. I think it's an important um, observation at this point in time. Um, what do I really like right now? I really like clean tech. The Inflation Reduction Act 22 that was just signed, uh, passed by, yep. by the Senate, 5150, narrow vote. Mm-hmm. Um that includes some $370 billion in energy spending over the next 10 years. Most of that spending is going towards the clean energy sector to incentivize development, mm-hmm. construction, and production of, of clean energy technologies and clean energy fuels. 
Uh, there's the introduction of a hydrogen production tax credit. There's the expansion uh, or the extension of the 30% investment tax credit for solar another 10 years into 2033. The EV tax credit of $7,500 per EV has been extended indefinitely, almost permanently, I guess. Um, they've removed mm-hmm. the 200000 per year car cap. Um uh, on manufacturers in the U.S. That, that are eligible for that tax credit. They've created a used EV tax credit of $4,500 for, um, for used EV sales. And most importantly, I think in, in, in my book, is they've introduced the first ever investment tax credit for standalone energy storage. You know, we've talked about it before. We love the energy storage space. Absolutely yep. think that is going to be the fastest growing industry of the 2020s. Super mm-hmm. bullish on that super bullish let me say it again super bullish on energy storage (laughs) and now we have the catalyst the first ever legal catalyst to really get the industry going it was investment tax credits standalone investment Mm -hmm. tax credits for solar that got the solar industry booming in the 2010s and look at some of the gains you've had in, in some of those stocks i mean Let's just let's how much how much is how much is end phase up, for example, over the past. Uh, oh, God, my Internet is so slow right now, guys. I'm so sorry. It's because you're <laughs> you're um, this takes up so much bandwidth right here. This podcast. No, I'm joking. Um, OK, so end, end, end phase 10 years ago was a was a five dollar stock. Now it's two hundred and eighty seven dollars. Solar mm-hmm. Edge uh, ten years ago was a well five years ago was an eighteen dollar stock. Now it's a three hundred dollar stock. Um, first Solar, let's see, ten years ago was a uh, twenty dollar stock. Now it's a hundred ten dollar stock. So we've seen some truly mind boggling, jaw dropping, fortune making, millionaire making. Um, investment opportunities mm-hmm. in solar that were sparked by the U.S. government creating an investment tax credit for solar projects. They just did that, created an investment tax credit for energy storage at a time when the urgency and need and desire for energy storage projects has never been greater. I think the stage is set for enormous growth in the energy storage sector over the next 10 years. I think it starts today. There are a few publicly traded stocks that I think are going to be 10x, 20x, 30x investments over the next few years. We own them in our portfolios. We're very excited to own them. I think that is that is the one industry space sector that I am super excited about right now. All of clean tech, EVs, solar, wind, hydrogen, mm-hmm. But especially energy storage, the introduction of an investment tax credit for standalone energy storage projects will be an enormous catalyst to spark mind-boggling growth in the energy storage industry over the next five to ten years. And leading energy storage players like, can't say their names, well, (laughs) for huge returns for early investors over the next five to ten years. So really, really positive on that sector right now. Super positive. Actually, I'm looking. I'm looking well, at you know, you a lot of those names. So it's it's a bad day in the market. It's yeah. it's, it's Tuesday. Um, S and P's down sixty bips. Nasdaq's one hundred fifty six bips. Uh, Bitcoin's off three percent. So it's a rough day for risk assets. And as I was just kind of googling some of those names, um, you know, they're up on mm-hmm. the day. 
Uh, a lot mm-hmm. of those, a lot of those energy storage, hydrogen, solar names, they're up on the day because the tailwinds are just so strong there right now, folks. They're so mm-hmm. strong. And that's what you like to see. You want to see relative strength in names you have high conviction in. We're seeing that in clean tech right now. I think that persists. I think it's just getting started, that bull market. So I know you can't give away indiv- certain individual names, but is there any uh, clean energy ETF that you would recommend that kind of encompasses this uh, clean energy movement? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the solar portfolio ETF, TAN, T-A-N, I think that looks, mm-hmm. that is, that's breaking out right now. Uh, kind of formed a bullish ascending triangle. It's breaking out of a multi-quarter downtrend. It looks like it has a lot of, a lot of room to run higher here. So I do like, um, if you're just going to play it on a broad strokes basis, I think TAN, solar ETF is, is a pretty mm-hmm. big way to play it. Gotcha. Uh, switching gears real quick into our crypto check-in. Again, any new news or are we still in this holding pattern? Yeah, I mean, we're, st- we're still in this holding pattern, but the price action is, is, is looking pretty favorable. Um, we've kind of like gone from that 17 to 20 range to a 20 to 23 range, 24 range. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to depend on the CPI print. Again, a good CPI print could kickstart this boom cycle early. A bad CPI print is going to knock us right back down in the consolidation uh, phase. So it's going to mm-hmm. all depend on the CPI on inflation. It's, it's a risk asset that's inflation sensitive. So we got to wait for that to come out. Um, I'm, I'm very constructive on some of the regulation that's moving forward. I think that regulation is going to be a saving grace for cryptos in 2023. So we're monitoring mm-hmm. that and we like what we're seeing there so far. Uh, the on-chain metrics still point to capitulation, minor capitulation sp- uh, specifically. So we like that because that is uh, typically a contrarian buy signal. Um and yeah, I mean, you got the Ethereum uh, merge. I don't know if that's going to be, that, that kind of feels right now like it's going to be a buy the rumor, sell the news type thing. So I'm a little cautious mm-hmm. on that. But I think medium term, it does create pretty big tailwinds for Ethereum and I believe for the okay. whole crypto space as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, when you, when you do your crypto kind of pulse check right now, well, I'm, I'm, I'm where I was a week ago, which is where I was two weeks ago, which is where I was three weeks ago, four <laughs> weeks ago, five weeks ago. We're range bound. And I yeah. think we're going to stay range bound until inflation meaningfully cools, until the Fed pivots. And I think we get boom cycle 23. I definitely think that happens. Mm-hmm. But for now, I think it's best just to relax again, just kind of stay on the sidelines and wait for that boom cycle to really get underway. Because again, if this boom cycle does get started, Bitcoin's boom cycles tend to be two or three years long, right? They tend to happen 12 to 18 months before the halving and last 12 to 18 months after the halving. So they tend to be two to three years long. On that basis, if you miss the first two months, that's fine. You know, you still got a lot of runway left, a lot of price action left, a lot of upside left. So that's why I'm just like, okay, let's just, let's relax. Let's chill for a little bit. And let's eventually, once we get confirmation of the boom cycle, get into cryptos, get really bullish, play boom cycle 23 and make a lot of money doing Mm -hmm. stuff. Awesome. Uh, Well, that covers all our topics for the day, but we definitely have a ton of fan questions this week. Uh, First question from CS Low. Uh, Many months ago, Luke had mentioned Isaiah, an influencer marketing company, and was particularly keen on their Shake online marketplace service. I understand Luke subsequently lost faith in Isaiah, and they didn't quite execute the Shake offering as he had hoped. Does Luke have any update on what Isaiah has been doing since? And is this a company worth revisiting? Why? Yes or no? Many thanks. Yeah, so unfortunately, I don't really have much of an update uh, for um, for you on Isaiah. Uh, 
to your point, I lost faith in that company quite a while back. Um, there was a lot of promise for the Shake platform, but this this was a great, you know, the, the, the teaching point here, the lesson was mm-hmm. talent really matters. That you can have a great mm-hmm. idea, but if you don't have the talent to execute that idea, then it doesn't matter. It's just a great idea. It will not be mm-hmm. a commercial success. That was Isaiah. Isaiah had this great idea, Shake, of a influencer influencer marketing talent marketplace where people could go and essentially rent the services of influencers. That's a genius idea mm-hmm. in today's world where influencers are kind of the new digital advertisers. If I want to get my product out and want to spread awareness of it, I'm going to tap an influencer to do so. That's the most cost-effective way to do it and the highest, I think, engagement way to do it. I don't, I'm not a marketer, but I would guess mm-hmm. based on the consumption of everybody around me. We listen to influencers more than we listen to digital ads on websites. So creating a mm-hmm. marketplace for people to seamlessly tap into influencers almost semi-programmatically like they do with a platform like the Trade Desk made a lot of sense. And that was really exciting to me. But Isaiah didn't have the talent to pull it off. And Mm -hmm. after mis-execution, a mis-execution, a mis-execution, I was like, okay, um, somebody's going to do this. Influencer – an Amazon-type platform for influencer marketing is going to happen. It's going to be big when it happens. It's probably not going to be these guys that build it. (laughs) <laughs> that that's 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 the conclusion I came to. So I threw in the towel on on that investment you mm-hmm. know, a while back. And unfortunately I don't have an update on what they're doing today, what the recent developments mm-hmm. are. Um but one thing I do want to point out here is this is where you have to separate price action from fundamental business developments. Okay. Mm-hmm. We did not throw in the towel on open door or SoFi. Because despite mm-hmm. – if you pulled up an Isaiah stock price chart next to Open Door and SoFi over probably mid, early 21 to mid 22, they probably look pretty mm-hmm. similar. Yet one of yep. those stocks, Isaiah, we threw the towel in on. Two of them, Open Door and SoFi, we didn't. The reason, the difference is that Isaiah, when it came to their quarterly updates, when it came to their business developments, they were negative. There was nothing there showing mm-hmm. Shake growing very rapidly. In fact, Shake was not mm-hmm. growing at all, uh, per my memory. I don't know if that's true anymore. And that was really worrisome. It's like, where's the execution here? Why is this platform that has so much potential not growing at all? Red flag. Meanwhile, Open Door was growing at 300, 400% year over year, expanding market share, growing margins, producing positive EBITDA, great numbers, great operational momentum. SoFi was growing users by 100,000, 200,000, 300,000, 400,000 every single quarter, adding more and more products every single quarter. Revenue growth was accelerating, margins were expanding, great operational momentum. That's the difference. When I make a decision on whether or not to keep a stock, buy a stock, hold a stock, sell a stock, I don't look at the stock price. I look at the business developments of the company and make a decision from there. Open Door and SoFi have very, very, very strong operational business developments at the current moment. Their businesses are on fire. Isaiah's is not. That's the difference between those mm-hmm. two uh, kind of situations. And I think it's a very important lesson to learn. But really, with Isaiah, it really came down to talent and execution. They didn't have what it takes, mm-hmm. what they needed to pull off the 
Amazon of influencer marketing platform. Again, somebody's going to do it. Don't know mm-hmm. who, but it's not yep. going to be Sam. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question comes from Steve Cook. Would love to hear your opinion analysis on IonQ and the quantum computing space. Yeah, so uh, love quantum computing. Um, it's very early stage, very nascent. Um, if you're going to be invested in quantum computing players, quantum computing stocks, you got to be in it for the long haul. This is definitely not something you're buying today and flipping in 23. It's something you're buying today and you're <laughs> sitting and you're waiting on uh, for yeah. four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years. And the plan is to make fortunes off that early bet. That is the playbook with quantum computing. But I think the quantum computing space is very promising. What quantum computers well mm-hmm. do to our world is almost unfathomable uh, in terms of the computing speeds mm-hmm. that will be reached by quantum computers um, and the things we'll be able to do from whether it's you know something as I don't want to say meaningless, but in the scope of things, meaningless as financial modeling and risk management to um, Gene editing and DNA synthesis, where we can now cure diseases like cancer because of quantum computing allows us to simulate things much more quickly, to creating that million-mile EV. A lot of uh, electric vehicle companies today are actually using quantum computers to simulate battery chemistries and figure out, okay, what's the best way to make this battery? Because quantum computers allow them to do it much more quickly, mm-hmm. much more robustly than with a classical computer. So there are a lot of real-world, enormous value-add applications of quantum computing, but all of it's pretty early stage right now. 95% of what's going on in this industry today is purely academic. Uh, The 5% that is commercial is happening on a small scope. So while I do think that this is a very promising investment opportunity, I am only pounding the table on it for people who want to be invested in this space for five to 10 years. Um, I do not predict mm-hmm. or who knows what's going to happen in the next five years of quantum computing. But what I do know is that over the next five to 10 years, you're going to see massive gains in this space and that the leading players in the space are going to be very, very, very successful. Awesome. Uh, next question comes from Danny Luong. Uh, can you explain why a stock like AMTD Digital Inc., uh, HKD, jumped from $15 to $1,700 in a couple of weeks? What's the catalyst that triggers this massive explosion? And as a retail investor, how do we spot these types of stocks and get in early? Uh, in short, I don't know, and you can't. <laughs> AMTG Digital <laughs> was just an anomalous, weird situation. Um, it was it was GameStop, AMC all over again, and some no name Chinese stock that whose business is completely mm-hmm. irrelevant to the stock price uh, surge. What happened there? Probably what mm-hmm. happened is uh, some people on Reddit got together and started pumping it. And then some hedge fund just caught wind of it, got their hedge fund buddies into mm-hmm. it. And they pumped a bunch of money into it. And then boom, because it's a low float, it could explode. And that's probably what happened. Yeah. Uh, it was okay. a true pump and dump scheme. So mm-hmm. how do you identify that? Oh, I, I, I scan Reddit boards and start taking bets. I yeah. don't know. I mean, really, it's it, mm-hmm. it's truly impossible to – predict when a pump is going to be successful because if even if you do scan those reddit boards right for every amtd mm-hmm. digital that is a success there are mm-hmm. dozens upon dozens of other tickers out there that people are trying to pump that don't gain the traction that amtd digital gained so mm-hmm. 
I think it's nearly impossible to predict what the next AMT Digital is going to be. In fact, I will say it is impossible to predict it. Um, how do you mm-hmm. should you partake in that nonsense? Hey, if you if, if you want to, you know, treat Wall Street like a casino and just throw in some money and say maybe I'll make a bunch off of it, be my guest. Just know that it's your money; it's the risk you're taking. And if you make money off it, mm-hmm. congratulations. If you lose money off of it, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. I am not doing it. I'm not recommending my subscribers do it. I'm not recommending anybody around mm-hmm. my inner circle does it. Family, friends, acquaintances. I say mm-hmm. stay away from that stuff. But if that's what you want to do, just he tells right. me to do it all the time. Uh, yeah, I do not. <laughs> I do not. Let's be crystal clear. I do not. <laughs> he does not. <laughs> not do that. Um, yeah, uh, it's a crazy situation. It's not going to be the last time. It, it's not yeah. the first time it's happened. It's not going to be the last time yep. it happens. They're going to keep coming up. There are going to be some funds out there that develop algorithms to try and spot the next one. That's not my game. Uh, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. I don't have the computing capacity here to do that. Um, the funds that are going to going to do that are going to have 17,000 computers and a bunch of software engineers going at it, searching all these boards and really doing all these data science techniques on which one's gaining the most momentum at a certain point in time. Mm-hmm. Tough game. Yep. Not a game I want to play. Uh, not a game that's sustainable in my opinion. So to me, mm-hmm. just noise in the market. All right. Uh, our last question comes from Rob Norman. If or when China attacks Taiwan, how will that affect our hypergrowth stocks? If or when China invades Taiwan, yeah, I um, I don't think that's going to happen. And I don't mean to sound. I know a lot of people are saying Russia's not going to invade Ukraine, then Russia invade Ukraine. Uh, so I don't <laughs> want to sound like that. But I really yeah. don't think China is going to invade Taiwan. There's Mm-hmm. A lot of, you know, Pelosi went to Taiwan, met with some companies. Now China's doing some drills. Taiwan's saying those drills mm-hmm. are prepping for an invasion. I think it's a bunch of hot air. I don't know why it's a bunch mm-hmm. of hot air, but I highly doubt China invades Taiwan. China's got way too many problems in their own country right now, from COVID lockdown mm-hmm. to a slowing economy to supply chain troubles uh, to upset consumers, upset citizens. Uh, their housing mm-hmm. market looks like it's on the brink of collapse. Uh, that They have way too many homegrown problems to be thinking about an invasion of Taiwan. Um, and I don't think mm-hmm. the U.S. would have done what the U.S. did unless they knew that China would not act against Taiwan. Because everybody knows that mm-hmm. if China invades Taiwan, it's just trouble city for the whole world. I mean, trouble city everywhere. Yeah. Not good. Uh, so to answer your question, if they do invade Taiwan – our hyper growth stocks alongside the rest of the market will get crushed. Crushed. Like they everything got crushed when Russia invaded Ukraine, except more so mm-hmm. because it's a bigger deal because Taiwan's a more important part of the global supply chain. Yes, mm-hmm. Ukraine produces a lot of wheat. Taiwan produces all the chips. The world runs on chips, semiconductor chips. So mm-hmm. it would be massive trouble city for the market. Fortunately, I think that mm-hmm. the black swan risk and the odds of that happening are in the range of 1% to 3 or 4%. I think it's very, very small. So mm-hmm. I don't think we have to really worry about that. Um, but yes, it would be disastrous for our stocks if that did happen. <laughs> well, disastrous. I'm going to hopefully bank on that 1% not happening. Uh, but great insights to our listeners as always. Uh, Luke, any last words before we wrap? You know, I've been preaching this idea for the past few weeks that we're in this bear market to bull market transition. 
and that fortunes are made exactly mm-hmm. during times like this. Um, we had a bear market, bull market mm-hmm. transition late 2001, 2002, 2003. During that time, the markets rallied big. A lot of stocks rose 10x, 15x, 20x. Names like Amazon soared. We had one in early 2009 to early 2010. During that time, the market soared. A lot of individual stocks rose 10x, 11x, 12x, 13x, 14x. We had one in early 2020 to early 2021. During that time, a lot of you know the markets melted up. A lot of stocks soared 10x, 11x, 12x, 13x, 14x. History has a tendency to repeat itself in cycles. And so I think we are in the midst of a veritable market transition that like 2001, 2002, like 2009, 2010, like 2020, 2021, will create fabulous buying opportunities for investors who buy the dip today and wait 12 months. Having said that, I don't think it is a linear recovery from here. Inflation is going to remain troublesome. And that is going to cause mm-hmm. this recovery to be jagged. Two steps forward, one step back. My recommendation is to not chase the two steps forward, but instead buy the one step back. So we're mm-hmm. going to take these massive two steps forward. We're going to, our, our hyper growth stocks are going to go up 20, 30% in a matter of three or four weeks. Then they're going to drop 10 or 15% in a week. Buy that dip. Mm-hmm. But then they're going to rally 20 or 30%. And then they're going to drop 10 to 15%. Buy that dip. Mm-hmm. Then they're going to rally 20 to 30%. Then they're going to drop 10%. Buy that dip. So what our game plan is over the next 12 months is we think we have this jagged recovery path. Our mm-hmm. plan is to buy. the if, When it zigs higher, we buy the zag lower. That's our mm-hmm. plan for the next 12 months. And we think in doing so, we're putting ourselves in a position to make quite a bit of money between now and the middle of 2023, the end of 2023, we think there's a lot of money to be made um, during that period. So that's my kind of final big picture overarching message for investors today. Um, you got to get greedy when others are fearful. A lot of fear right now. Get greedy. Yep. But don't get greedy when this boom, 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 boom. Get greedy when boom, <laughs> boom, and then you have the pullback, the sharp pullback because you're yeah. going to get those. That's what recoveries look mm-hmm. like. Get aggressive on those sharp pullbacks and I think you'll be fine over the next 12 months. Not, not just fine, you'll be great over the next 12 months. I'm pretty confident in saying that. All right. Well, good. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in our comments section. We'd love to hear your feedback and on any topics you'd like us to cover and see if we can answer any of your burning questions. Until then, please don't forget to like and subscribe and we will see you next week. Bye, all.